It says, for you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's, say that with me, church. What's that next word? Gift. It's God's gift, Paul writes. Not from work so that no one can boast. For we're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. This is God's word. You can take your seat. From this passage, I want to preach a brief sermon on the thought it had to be a gift. It had to be a gift. Join me for a moment of prayer as I ask for the Lord's help. God, we thank you that in a season where people all over the world are thinking about gifts, buying gifts, giving gifts, we're able to come to this place and gather together and consider the greatest gift that we've ever been given in Christ. We thank you that you saw fit to grant salvation as a gift to undeserving people. Lord, we worship you and rejoice that you've given this gift in spite of who we are, in spite of our shortcomings, in spite of the fact that you tell us yourself we fall short of your glory. Yet you've still been so, so kind and so gracious, Father, to give the gift of regeneration, to make us new, to grant us new life and then empower us to live these new lives as a display of the work that you've done in and the work that you're doing through us. God, we can never say thank you enough, but I do pray and ask that as we take time over the next few weeks and consider how gracious a gift giver you are, that we would be more prone to more frequently say thank you. Like today, Father, we consider the gift of salvation afresh and have fresh gratitude dropped into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I got to pray and ask that you give me grace to preach as one saved sinner to other saved sinners and to sinners who we pray and hope might be saved today. And I pray and ask that you would grant clarity in thought, clarity in speech, concision in thought and speech, conviction in heart, Father. All that you know I need. I pray and ask that you would provide for the proclamation of your word. Use me, a human vessel who is available to you, to do what only you can. And allow your word to be proclaimed in a way that pierces the hearts of your people. I pray this for your glory, with dependence upon your spirit, and in the name of your son. Amen. Well, it is that time of year. Lists are being made, secrets are being kept, anticipation is being built, budgets are being broken, bank accounts are being emptied out. <laughs> it's that time of year, the season of giving. It's time when, when people all over the world purchase and joyfully give gifts. It reminds me of that time when my parents gifted me the thing I've been hoping and wishing for all year long. I was probably six or seven years old. I spent the first part of my life in a very rural part of southern Georgia. There weren't a whole lot of things to do in this town. And so what kids did for fun was to ride and drive 
off-road vehicles, go-karts, dirt bikes, ATVs. When you got to be big enough to drive one of those by yourself, this was your form of entertainment. And one Christmas, I knew I was finally going to be big enough. <laughs> and so I spent all year long telling my parents, like, hey, what I want for Christmas this year is a go-kart. Like, I didn't even have to make a list. My list consisted of two words, go and cart. And I told my parents all year long to make sure they knew what I wanted. And so as we got into the month of December, uh, we were approaching Christmas Day. And my dad took me to this, uh, this store that specialized in selling these off-road vehicles. So we go in, and, and, and I get to sit on all these different go-karts. You know, I'm trying to see uh, what kind of seats feel the best, what colors look the best, what, 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 like, like which of these go-karts is the best go-kart to purchase. Like, do I want red? Do I want blue? Do I want bucket seats? Or do I want a bench seat? What do I want on my go-kart? We're waiting all year long. And so I got to get this thing exactly right to let my parents know exactly what I want. And so I tried a bunch of different ones. We leave, and I leave with high hopes. Will my go-kart dreams and wishes come true this Christmas? So Christmas morning comes. My family gathers in the living room. I don't know why. Maybe I was delirious from excitement, but I was looking around in the living room as if the go-kart somehow would have been in the living room. Thankfully, it was not. But we gather in the living room. I watch my family members open gifts. I open a few gifts myself, things like books, clothes, so, oh, thank y'all so much. But where's my go-kart at, though? Like, I really like this shirt, but I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on the go-kart. And toward the end of it, I started to get nervous because nobody had said anything about a go-kart, and I hadn't seen one. And so I'm sitting there, the gift-giving and receiving is kind of wrapping up, and then my mom finally says, she says hey, baby, uh, why don't you gather some of these boxes and, and take them outside to kind of clear some of the clutter from the living room? So I gather the boxes. I'm headed toward the front door, and I'll never forget it. As I approached the front door, I could kind of see through the, the frost on the storm door that my granddad's truck was backed up to our front porch. And I could see that sitting in the bed of my granddad's truck was another thing with four wheels. And so I dropped the boxes, I run to the front door, I open the door, and there it is, this go-kart that I've been waiting on all year long. And as I think about the different gifts I've been given, whether it be for Christmas or birthday, some other occasion, as I think back over the different gifts I've received in life, this one sits with a special level of prominence in my mind. This go-kart sticks out above all the other gifts. Like, I drove that go-kart every day for the next couple of years. It was one of the most thrilling, well-used gifts I ever received. And it continues to be one of my most cherished memories of having received a gift. And chances are, Many of us have a most memorable gift of this kind. I'd be willing to bet that most of us have, at one point or another, been given a gift that we will never forget. It might have been a Christmas for you, or a birthday, anniversary maybe. Maybe it was a gift of some kind of sentimental value. Maybe your most cherished gift had monetary value. Maybe it was something that had experiential value, like somebody paid for you to go and do something that you'll never forget. I don't know what it is. But I bet if we were to give you the microphone, you could come and tell us all about your most cherished gift and why it is most cherished to you. And God is a kind God, isn't he? To even give us gifts of this kind in this life. He's kind to allow us to know and have memories of times that we've received cherished gifts in this life. But y'all know something? God's kindness is even more clear 
and that he would be willing to offer gifts that go beyond this life. You see, God is kind, church, because he offers gifts of any sort. We don't deserve them, but God still, in his kindness, gives them to us. So he's kind because he offers gifts of any sort. But, oh, friends, God is kind, abundantly kind, because he offers gifts of the eternal sort. And so I want to encourage us all this morning, this this Advent season, to consider the gifts of God that hold weight, not only for this life, but also for the next life. I want to encourage us to consider the more important, unfading, imperishable gifts of God. And this morning in particular, I want us to consider the gift of God that salvation is. Uh, Paul writes about this gift in his letter to the church at Ephesus. And our careful reading of this letter implies to us that this church uh, must have been made up of people who were somewhat like us. Uh, They must have been people who were sometimes tempted toward uh, self-righteousness and self-dependence or uh, maybe doubt and skepticism, division and clickism. Paul seemed to have known that this church made up of sinful human beings would have people be tempted as sinful human beings are tempted uh, toward a multitude of sins that at the end of the day could likely be traced back to the, the root sin of pride. The reason I say this about pride is because in writing this letter, Paul spends the first half of it simply telling these Christians about the process by which they've been saved. He tells them about how God, from before the beginning of time, had a plan of salvation for them. He tells them about how this plan and the execution of this plan and, and the miraculous work, it was, it was miraculous work of God taking spiritually dead people and making them spiritually alive unto salvation. He tells his church friends about how their salvation had taken place for the pleasure of God the Father through the work of Christ the Son and with the permanent seal of the Holy Spirit. But as Paul tells them all of this, he makes sure to also tell them that the whole process of it all was the process of a gift being given. That's what's in the verses before us this morning. Paul tells his church what I want to reiterate for us today. The salvation we have, we have because it was given as a gift. And the salvation we've received, the salvation we've been gifted, we were gifted because it had to be a gift. You see, knowing the human temptation toward pride, Paul makes the point that salvation is a gift from God and salvation is actually a gift about God. It makes the point that salvation is a gift from God and it's the gift about God. And now whether you've received this gift of salvation or not today, I hope you'll kind of lean in this morning to consider how the gift of being eternally saved comes from God who gives it in grace and mercy and, and is meant to be about God who gives it in grace and mercy. And just in case you're skeptical of me, this is no interpretation of my own. You see it in the verses, right? Paul writes explicitly in verse eight, you're saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. So he doesn't leave it up to interpretation. Paul tells us outright, the way salvation is gained is by it being given as a gift. And I want to encourage everybody in the room this morning to joyfully consider what, what kind of forms these two bookends around that phrase about salvation being a gift. See, before Paul tells us salvation is a gift, he says it's not from yourselves. Then after he tells us it's a gift, he says it's not from works. So Paul's making the point that the salvation you have, you have done nothing to gain, church. Literally, it doesn't, it doesn't flow from you. It doesn't flow from your works. Your salvation does not have its origin in who you are, nor in anything you've done. Your salvation originates from who God is and what God has done. And now here's the reason this is good news for us this morning at Pioneer Church. Because if it were up to you to save yourself, not only would you not have been able to, but you wouldn't have wanted to. Not only would you have lacked ability for your salvation, you would have lacked wisdom to know you needed salvation. Not only were you too weak to save yourself, you were too blind to see that you needed to be saved. 
I mean, this is the testimony of every Christian in this room that we got a God who was gracious to reveal to us our need and to give us what we needed. The testimony, friends, of every believing heart in this room is that God broke it over sin, then he renewed it for salvation. The testimony of everyone who's saved is that it is not from ourselves. It is not from our works. It is a gift from God. And I hope, church, I pray that this continues to be the testimony we bear. Because catch this. It's the Christian testimony that God saved you. But it's a Christian temptation to operate as if you saved you. What do I mean by that? Well, even though we know works didn't get us there, it's easy to fall into operating as if works is what keeps us there. So if your devotional life, if your devotional time always feels like a duty and never feels like a privilege, you may need to think more about how freely you were saved. If your service to your church is just a weekly box to check off your Christian task list, you may need to think more about how freely you were saved. If you struggle to to forgive others when they've wronged you, you may need to think about how freely you've been forgiven. Or here's a radical one, right? If you obsess over and fixate on your mess ups and sins and the guilt you feel about messing up, consider again that your salvation was a gift freely given to you. Or if you condescend on others when they mess up, consider again that your salvation was a gift freely given to you. It never was us. It never was our works. It will never be us, and it will never be our works, friends. Salvation is, has always been, and will always be a gift from God. It's a gift given by grace and through faith, Paul says in the earlier parts of verse 8. For you're saved by grace through faith. If you've been going to church for any extended period of time, you've probably heard these two words defined before. Grace being the extension of something that is undeserved, faith being belief in something that is not yet seen. These are pretty helpful definitions when it comes to passages like this one. You see, these definitions help to bring reality and clarity to to this truth that salvation is a gift we were given, even though we didn't deserve it, and even though we don't yet fully see the downstream effects of it. So while we were sinners, God saved us. The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it was the power of God to us when we were saved. It's an incredible testimony we have, church. An amazing testimony about amazing grace and amazing faith. Amazing faith and amazing grace. Uh, You know, this is what makes Christianity different from every other religion in the world, right? I mean, every other religion has at its core uh, this this belief that, that there's something you can do to get right and then reach up to God. Christianity, though, has at its core the true notion that there ain't nothing you could have done to get to God, but God and his grace has done everything necessary to get to you. I mean, that's what Christmas is all about. Like The reason we celebrate Advent is because we got a God who came to us. The word Advent literally means coming. Advent is the celebration of, of the God of the universe dressing himself in human clothing, then coming to be among human sinners and dying in our place at the hands of human persecutors, but rising from the grave to provide human salvation. It's a testimony of amazing grace we have, church. And if you're in the room not yet having this testimony for yourself, if, if you're here and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I encourage you today, lean in and take part in this amazing grace of God. The Christian testimony is that we've been saved by the amazing grace and gift of God. The beauty of the Christian gospel is that God still has more of this gift to give. It's when the same way I just finished urging my brothers and sisters, I want to urge you now. Stop trusting in whatever you're trusting in for present and eternal well-being and trust instead in the amazing grace of God. 
Stop trusting in your works because they ain't good enough. Stop trusting in yourself because you ain't good enough. Trust instead in the gift of God and in the amazing grace by which he gives it. It's the same amazing grace that has saved the Christians in this room. It's the same amazing grace that has saved even the worst of sinners. The same amazing grace that led John Newton to pen the song we sang this morning about this amazing grace. Amazing grace. Go there with me, church. From the top. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch. Come on. Like me. Yeah. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen. Amazing grace. Arguably some of the most sung words in all of Christian history. But I can't help but wonder, church, if we consider just how amazing the grace is that we sing about. The grace that has carried us to eternal salvation and hope. I mean, many people sing this song because it has a good medley, but John Newton's intent for this song was for it to lead us to think about how just, just how amazing the grace of God is. He actually wrote the song as kind of this a musical testimony of his own salvation. Uh, Newton was a man who grew up in the home of a devoted Christian mother, but a heathen forefather. His mom sought to impart gospel truth into him as, as best as she could. His father, on the other hand, was a sailor who was often away at sea among slave ships where he would venture back and forth, capturing and transporting people from Africa to bring them into American captivity. Well, Newton's mom passed away early in his life. And he ended up following in the footsteps of his father, eventually becoming the captain of his own slave ship. But one day, he and his crew were at sea, and a raging storm arose. Several men had already been thrown overboard. Newton was unsure if any of them would live through this storm, so he did the only thing he knew to do. He cried out to the God that he watched his mama pray to. He pleaded for mercy and grace for salvation from this storm. But friends, what he was given was mercy and grace for salvation from the storm, and mercy and grace for salvation from sin. God spared Newton that night. He allowed Newton to live from that night forward. And and so Newton began pondering how God could save a man as wretched as him from perishing in this life, but even more so from perishing in the next life. He became convinced that in order for God to extend this kind of salvation to the kind of sinful man that he was, he had to be a God of amazing grace. And I think that the reason we can sometimes sing that song without feeling the lyrics. The reason we can have this gift of salvation without considering how amazing the grace is that got it for us is because we, unlike Newton, don't remember how far grace had to come to bring us to God. I mean, we may not have been on a slave ship when we encountered the Lord and his grace, but all of us, friends, have been some places we shouldn't have been. We've been with some people we shouldn't have been with. We've engaged in some activity we shouldn't have been engaged in. We've bought some stuff, we've watched some stuff, we've said some stuff, we've, we've thought some stuff, and if we can be honest this morning, we still slip sometimes and still be doing some stuff. But God in his grace and mercy, he reaches out to us and he says, I've got amazing grace that can cover all your stuff. I wipe all your stuff clean so that you can come to me as a redeemed, restored, made righteous sinner by the blood of Christ. Ain't never too far for the grace of God, church. The word saved in verse 8 actually suggests this. It's in a Greek pretense that, that, that this word is used, and, and it means that it has a completed action that has continual consequences. 
So Paul wanted these Christians in Ephesus and the Christians at Pioneer Church to know that the salvation you've been given, the grace by which you, it's been offered, and the faith by which you've received, it was good when you were first saved, it's good now that you are saved, and if those first two are true, it's good for you to keep being saved, church. Salvation, friends, is a gift from God. And the beautiful part is that it's a gift that keeps on giving and giving and giving, and for all of eternity, this gift from God of salvation continues to give. It's a good gift. It's a gift from God. But as we move on, we can't forget that it's also a gift about God. Paul says it's God's gift. It's not from yourselves. It's not from works. But why? Look at the end of verse 9. So that no one can boast. Why shouldn't we boast? Verse 10. Because we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Now back at the beginning of verse 8, there was another conjunction. That word for was also there at the beginning of verse 8. That word connects these verses to the verses that come right in front of them. Uh, Paul had just finished telling the Ephesians about their salvation and, 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 and the eternal hope of it. And then in verse 7, he says that the salvation has been provided so that in the coming ages, God might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So Paul was saying then, yeah, you're saved, but you ain't saved for your own glory. He's saying you're saved for God's glory. He's saying your salvation is not about you, it's about God. And so he turns around and reinforces that same truth here at the end of verse 9 into verse 10. He's making the point that because you didn't save yourself, because your salvation was a gift and not a reward, you've been stripped of all grounds for boasting in your own glory. So let me say this, church. There should be no such thing as an arrogant, condescending, conceited Christian. We've been saved by grace, and therefore we should live by grace. Oakland is in a phase right now. We'll call it that. Uh, he's recently learned the concept of possessions. And he's more like me than I care to admit at times. And so he can sometimes be uh, selfishly possessive. We'll give him a snack. Keep in mind now, this is the house that Lauren and I paid the mortgage for. We got this snack out of the pantry that Lauren and I put snacks in. And so we'll give him a snack. And that joker will look at me with his snack. And bold-faced it, go, Daddy, this is my snack. This is my applesauce. And at first I'd be like, okay, well, he's, he's two. I'll let it slide. But then he started to say stuff like, uh, Daddy, these are not your goldfish. These are my goldfish. And so I told Lauren, I was like, look, man, if, if he keeps this up, I'm going to have to start charging him rent. <laughs> he can't just be walking around here saying that kind of stuff. He eating for free. Boasting about what he's been freely given. Church, we laugh at Oakland. But I wonder if God has similar feelings about us when we try to properly show off our theological knowledge in a conversation or arrogantly talk about all the things we do for God and his kingdom or pray long prayers so that people will be impressed by our many words. Now, I'm not saying that showing and testifying about good things is wrong. It's the motive of the heart that matters. But if we take any part of our salvation to wear a badge of honor for ourselves instead of bestowing honor unto God, our hearts are in the wrong place. We didn't grow in our own theological knowledge without revelation from God. We don't do good things for the kingdom without power from God. And we aren't able to pray fervent prayers without help from God. We have no reason to boast, friends. So Paul says here, know that your salvation is a gift so that you won't boast. Know that it's a gift from God and it's a gift about God. And he tells us in verse 10 that this boasting ought not to happen because as those who were given the gift of salvation, 
We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So he says we're God's workmanship. A few things I want to say about this. First, notice that the noun Paul uses is plural. He says we are God's workmanship. So catch this. Your salvation is not about you. It's about God. And it isn't an individual thing. It's a communal thing. We are all individually, yes, but also collectively the workmanship of God. And so what is workmanship? Y'all always ask the right questions. The Greek word that's translated workmanship is where we get our English words like poem and painting. It's a kind of artistic creation or handiwork. So, so part of the gift of salvation is that you get to be a part of this creative masterpiece that God puts his personal stamp on. It's another sermon for another day, but for those who are saved in Christ, it shouldn't matter what nobody says about you or what nobody thinks of you. What God thinks of you is that you're worthy of being included in this masterful tapestry known as the church. So listen, Christian, if you feel low in value or have a poor perception of yourself, try adopting God's perception of you instead. You're a part of God's workmanship, Paul says. And when he says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, the primary point he's trying to make is that what Jesus did to save us transformed us into a display of what God could do to save us. You see, as the masterful workmanship of God, we're to be a display of the miraculous power of God to take dead sinners and and recreate them from the inside out, giving them new life and power for righteousness. And so instead of boasting in ourselves as if we've done something, we're to boast about God who's crafted into and us into what we are, and about Jesus, who is the instrument by which the crafting took place. How do we do it? Thankfully, the passage tells us. We live carrying out the good works that God prepared ahead of time for us to do. When you reflect the character of God, you display the masterful handiwork of God in your life. After I realized that it probably wasn't going to work for me to to charge Oakland rent, um, I started to think about some other ways that I could kind of address this possessiveness that he's been showing. And so Lauren and I figured it out. Now when he says something is his, we simply ask the question, okay, yeah, where did you get it from? And he'd be like, um, and we say, okay, you're not getting that one. Who bought it? He'll say, mommy and daddy bought it. And we say, okay, so what should you say in response to that? And he'll say, thank you, mommy and daddy. <laughs> So I'm closing with this church. Who saved you? What should you be saying with your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for the gift that salvation is. We say it often, but I pray and ask that it would resonate deeply into our hearts this morning. You have done for us what we could have never done for ourselves. You've poured out amazing unimaginable grace. You've made us new. You've given us eyes to see just how wretched we were. Then you pulled us out of our wretchedness. Might we not waver in our cherishing this most pleasing, most promising, most amazing gift we've ever been given. Might we always cherish it. And might our lives be a testament of thanks unto you for giving it. We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And we do so in the name of your son. Amen.